My mother used to sing that to me often at night. She was a uh, choir director in Montgomery, Alabama for some years, and that would be one of the songs that she would sing. And uh, It was amazing, actually, uh, in how many songs. I wasn't a Christian until I was 20, but I grew up in the church. But it is actually amazing about how many of the songs that she would sing to us growing up. And then once the Holy Spirit made the lights turn on, how beautiful those truths were. Uh, Let me invite you to open up your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We are looking this morning at the simplicity of God and the immutability of God. And I'll explain what those mean. But first off, when we're thinking about preaching, preaching is simple, but it is never supposed to be simplistic. It is never supposed to be dull, but rather supposed to drown us in the glory of God. And what does that mean? It means this. We want to make preaching obviously as clear as we can because it doesn't matter if it's not clear. But you won't be able to understand everything about God. Why? Because we're finite. He's infinite. Actually, one of the best things for us to do is to say, I don't understand everything, but what I do understand is so amazing that I will worship Him. That's what preaching is. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we'll read verses 1 through 5. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may dwell them, uh, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the word of the Lord, God's people said. Let's pray. Our God, we do look to you. And in this moment... Even as one person might be preaching and many might be listening, we are all worshiping. And we're worshiping you. And you have given us this means of grace to be so central to how we grow in knowing you and knowing the gospel. And so that it might change the way that we live. And so we ask again, even though it might be so normal each week. We ask again that the miracle of hearing by faith might happen. Help us to behold you. Help us to see Christ who has come to save wretched sinners. So that we might have that assurance that forever makes us blessed. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Growing up in Alabama, if you can't tell by this amazing accent... Growing up in Alabama, it has many similarities to Oklahoma. And what that means is that in the fall season, Saturdays are pretty big days. It's what you look forward to all week as as a young boy. And 
it was interesting because all, almost all my extended family grew up and they went to Auburn. We didn't really like to talk about, you know, the other school up north where you said something about roll and tide. My dad's parents had a motor home where they would take it to every Auburn home football game. My mom's parents both went and met there. My mom's brothers went to Auburn and eventually almost all my cousins and my older brother would go to Auburn. Auburn was huge in our family and the football games were what we looked forward to. And I remember one particular week when my mom's dad was really prepping me and getting me ready for the upcoming Auburn football game that we were going to go to. And he kept telling me, now don't forget your game face. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to forget my game face. So we're getting ready all week. And I, I'm, I'm just telling myself, I have to remember one thing. There's one thing that's most important this week. Don't forget your game face. And we start to leave Montgomery and as we... Get on to the interstate heading the 45-minute drive from Montgomery to Auburn. We get on the interstate and it dawns on me. In the words of my mom, who loves to remind me of the story, I go, Ah! We forgot our game faces. Because to me, the game face was the actual paint that you painted your face with. And we forgot to paint our faces. It was a tragedy. It was a moment of horror for me because I forgot... Or I thought we had forgotten what was most important. Now that's a silly illustration, but it is something true about us. Is that we often forget things that are very important. But the biggest horror in life is when we forget what is most important. You need to ask yourself the question, as is stated in our Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number one, what is the chief end? Of man. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what's most important. But unfortunately, in a lot of today's Christianity, we love to not think much about God, but about us and about what we call is practical. Now, practical is good. We don't just want to have a head knowledge of God and not have a changed life. We will talk about that. But we are so obsessed today with just saying, well, I'm not, I don't really care about thinking rightly about God as long as I can just have things that make my life easier. But if I can compare that type of idea to something that is also very prevalent today, and it's almost like this. To say that we don't need to spend time getting to know God and we just need the things that are practical is like the hookup culture today. I don't really care about getting to know you. I just want your body. We would rather have life all about us and we use God as a means to an end. God is the means. The end is us. But that contradicts what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, where he says at the end of his letter and his book, he says, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. John Flavel, the Puritan pastor, once said this, the mind is to the heart as a door is to a house. What comes into the heart comes through the mind. In other words, we need to remember that if our hearts are going to be changed, our minds need to be renewed. 
That's actually why when Jesus in Luke 24, he had risen from the dead. He's showing his, uh, these two disciples as they're walking with him on the road to Emmaus. And rather than just viewing these miracles in front of their eyes, what he does is he opens up the scriptures to them. He teaches them who God is and how to read it. But here's what happens. When they thought rightly about God and his word, then their hearts were changed and were happy. Why do I say all this? This morning, we are hearing from the Lord and his word talking about the simplicity of God and the immutability of God. And that's probably not something you try to think about every day. And you might be tempted to say, I'm tired this morning. The kids were difficult and I'm just really, my stomach's kind of grumbling right now. I'm really looking forward to those leftovers from last night or whatever it is. But what God says is most important and what is most joyous is when you study him. And we're going to show you, God's going to show you how practical his word is. We're looking at divine simplicity and divine immutability, and I'll explain what that, what that means. Here in the context of Deuteronomy 6, if you know the story of the first five books of the Bible, uh, Israel, back in Exodus 32, they had made a golden calf, and they had sinned greatly against the Lord. And then later in the book of Numbers, even though God had said, look, I delivered you out of the land of Egypt, I'm going to deliver you to your homeland. But in the book of Numbers, when they went to go spy out the land, they were fearful. And they didn't think God could do it. So God, as their punishment, made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And now, in this point in the book of Deuteronomy, they're getting ready to finally go. Now, here's what's interesting. The practical part was that they were going to go and get the land, right? But what does God say? Here's what he says. Here's what I want you to know before you go anywhere, before you do anything. I want you to know, look at verse four. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. He is one. It's divine simplicity. God is, as we could say, unchangeably simple and simply unchangeable. This word, this Hebrew word here for one, it certainly means single and singular, meaning that there are no other gods in existence. There is only one God, but it also means this. It also means that within God himself, he is not divided. He does not have all these different parts that combine like a pizza. And you throw all your different toppings there. And when you combine all that, then you get God. No, no, no. God is simple. Now, husbands, wives, it's maybe not always the best advice to look at your spouse and say, you are just so simple. But to God, it is a compliment. And it is glorious. What is simplicity? Here's one of the things whenever finite minds try to talk about the infinite is that we often have to say first what God is not. Here's what we do not mean when we think of divine simplicity. I remember my freshman year at Tulane down in New Orleans and we had this uh, intro business class and one of the really cool things that our professor did on the first day of class is that he took the whole class and, and he helped us make gumbo. And we divided up into three teams, and, and it was a competition for who could make the best gumbo. Now, what was amazing is that we tasted each 
of the three gumbos, and they're all great. But they all had their different accents. One had a little more okra. One had a little more garlic. One had a little more onion. Because you have all these different parts that combine to make up gumbo. But that's not what, what God is. God is not the combination of parts. See, what we could call the A-team of St. Augustine and Athanasius and Anselm and Aquinas. They were constantly saying that God is not made up of parts. He is simple. You see, here's why that matters. If God is made up of parts, you put all these different slices of pizza and when you combine that, that's God. The problem is this. Then God is depending on something else for his existence. Right? But God is not made up of Parts. Here's one theologian, James Dolezal. What a great name. James Dolezal says this. Things composed of parts depend on their parts for some aspect of their being. In other words, this. If God is made up of parts, you take out a part of God and he is no longer God. But that's not who he is. God is not made up of parts. He is one simple essence. So you got to think about this illustration. Think about a car. When you put all the parts of a car together, you have the car. But you can take out the engine, and you have the engine in and of itself. But then the car without an engine, I know technology's changing and all these different things, but just bear with me. When you take out the engine, the car is not the car, not the fullness of the car. That's not what we mean when we say God is simple. It's not as if there is God, and then there's also love and holiness and wisdom. And it's not even this. We don't even say this. That God is taking all the good things in this life. All the good things that we enjoy. All the great experiences and attributes. The things that we, the characteristics that we see in people. And let's take all those good things and let's just make them perfect. That's God. That's not it. God is totally above all that. He's not made up of parts. He's simple. It's clear as, clear as muddy water, right? You see, God, it's not as if he has love, but that he is love. Here's what we're doing here. This might seem like, I don't know what in the world Wilson's doing here or why this matters. Here's what we're doing. We're aligning our cannons. Because when we put the cannons in the right position, when we fire them one by one, you'll see how it matters. So bear with me. God is not made up of parts. Here's what he is. He is one simple, undivided essence. God is the absolute first cause of all things. If God is the first cause of all things, then it means no one has brought him into existence. If God at one point came into existence, then who brought him into existence? God alone is God. That's what he says to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when Moses sees him in the burning bush. And he says, I am who I am. He just simply is. He doesn't depend on anyone for his existence. And because God is simple, God can be infinite. See, think about this. If God has love rather than God is love. 
If God has love, he has a certain quantity of love. But if God is love, he is infinite in love and never gets tired of showing you love. You tracking with me? But if God just has love, then eventually he'll get tired of you. He is who he is. He is simple. Here's what's another amazing part about this. Because God is simple. He's not made up of parts. It means God will never contradict himself. He will never contradict himself. Listen to this. It's from Michael Horton. One implication is that we cannot rank God's attributes or make one of them more essential to God than another. God is love even when he judges. He is holy and righteous even when he saves wretched sinners. He is eternal even when he takes on flesh and acts within time. Right? Are you kidding me? God, he is totally consistent with himself. Now you might ask the question, but what about the Trinity? Great question. Actually, this is what early theologians such as uh, Augustine and Aquinas and Anselm and Athanasius, this was actually central to even have the, have the Trinity as it were. Because God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are not three different gods. It's not as if God the Father has some attributes and the Son has other attributes and the Holy Spirit has other attributes. No, 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 no. They all share the same simple essence. Do you know why that's amazing? Because when God the Father decides to give the Son to die for your sins, and that the Holy Spirit will then take that work and apply it to your heart, here's what it means. God is giving you himself. He's not just throwing down parts of himself to you. He is giving himself to you. The only difference in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is their relations, not... Their essence. So the Nicene Creed says that the Son is very God of very God. Jesus himself says in John 4, 24, he's talking to the woman at the well. Now think about this. Think about this for practical Christianity, if I may. He's talking to this woman at the well who's struggling with sexual sin. And he says, if you want to know something about God and how to worship him, you must know that God is spirit. Now, it doesn't seem very practical at the moment, but it's hugely practical. It doesn't say that God has something that makes him up. He simply is. As Joel Beakey and Brian Cosby say, God's attributes are God. Let me make just one application before we dive into this more. 1 John 4.8 says that God is love. Love in today's culture, we define that as anything that makes me feel good. But the problem is this. If we are making up our own definition of love, then we're never going to get love because God is love. So whenever you ignore God, you will never find the essence of love. But rather, you will find the fullness of love when you remember and constantly point to God. Amen? That's who he is. God is Spirit, he is love. And John says again in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. So the question is, is God spirit or is he love or is he light? The answer is yes. 
because we're merely describing him and who he is. Now, how is this good news? Here's how it's good news. First off, you've got to understand the bad news. If God is simple, then whenever we do not worship God, we inevitably are worshiping something else. And whatever we worship, we call that idols. Whatever we worship, whether control, acceptance, power, you know, whatever we worship besides God that functionally rules our life, all those things are made up of parts. It's not God. And if you worship something besides God, it will warp you into its own image. And when you worship something or someone other than God and it warps you into its image, you betray what you were really made for. Because you were made in whose image? God's image. Your idols are not just safe things that you can kind of tinker and toy with. They will destroy you. But I'll say this. If God is simple, if God is not divided, then here's what it means. You must be perfect. The law of God tells you, you must be perfect in totality. You cannot have a divided life. You cannot sit there and say, well, I'm pretty good in these areas, even though I'm not so good in these areas. And then the scales might balance out. That doesn't work with God because he is simple. You cannot say, well... You know, at least I tried hard or at least I gave some effort here. But that doesn't work with God because he is perfectly simple and demands total righteousness. It also means that we cannot have a divided life. Look at verse five in our text. You shall love the Lord your God with parts of your heart. Isn't that what it says? You shall love the Lord with God, the Lord your God with parts of your heart of your heart or parts of your soul or parts of your might. No, 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 no. All. Because he deserves all. We can't hold back our sexuality and what we think about it from God. We can't hold back any part of our identity from God. We can't hold back our job from God, our parenting, our friendships, our, our social media use, and, and even what we watch uh, on TV or even in our own individual thought life. You cannot hold back any part of God because he demands it all. That's what it's saying. That searches every single one of us in here. And frankly, in the true sense of the term, it damns you. It curses you. Because none of us can do it. But God won't budge. It's who he is. It's what he demands. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, And fall short of the glory of God. So what in the world is the good news? The good news, my friend, is that there is one who is both God and man. Who is both simple and complex. You remember when we're talking about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Son, the simple God. Second person of the Trinity. He's not a different God. He is the second person of the one God. And what does he do? He takes on flesh and he unites God and man in one person. Here's why that's amazing. Because everything that the son does is earning infinitely valuable righteousness. 
When he obeys his parents, it's not just him obeying his parents just for him, but for all the people he would save. When he gets spit in the face and he doesn't spit back, and when he is accruing that righteousness, it's not just for him. It is worth an infinitude amount so that millions upon millions of people can make it to heaven. He is the simple God who took on flesh. Amen? You see, it's Jesus Christ and the worth of of His righteousness that covers us. And now the Father will always look upon those who embrace Jesus Christ and He will always say, it is enough. Because He is. Not because you are. He is. Amen? Come on now. That matters. Simplicity matters. You see, this changes the way we we live because here's the thing. If God is simple now as we learn to follow Christ we learn to proclaim Him, not just the parts of Him we like. And is it, you see how that's really relevant for today's culture. In the midst of cancel culture, in the midst of growing seculosity, in the midst of growing worldliness, we don't like to proclaim God. We like to proclaim little g God, a God we can fit in our pockets, who's convenient. But if God is simple, then He, all of Him, must be proclaimed. We proclaim Him. We follow Him. Not just the parts of Him that are easy because He's not made up of parts. We embrace His Word. We don't do the Thomas Jefferson Bible where we cut out pieces of the Bible that we don't really like. We take Him at His Word because His Word reveals Him. See, if God is simple and if God is love, if God is life, then once again it means that if we are going to understand what it means to love people and what it means to live a holy life, you cannot forget God. Because God is the loveliness of love and the holiness of holiness. It's Him. It's God. You see, this also helps us as our text is talking about to fear God. You see that in verse 2. God is going to tell them this, what he's going to say, so that they may fear the Lord your God. That's the purpose of humanity. The first thing that we need to do is to fear the Lord, but not in a sinful fear. We mean a godly fear. Here's what it would mean to have a sinful fear of God. You see, if you don't think about God rightly and you think about God that he's just made up of parts, don't we often live with trembling fear and we're scared that which part of God am I going to get today? Am I going to get the nice God or am I going to get the harsh taskmaster? And I know maybe, or actually really all of us have felt those relationships in our lives at some level because people are not always consistent, but God is consistent. Don't fear. We don't have to do the whole get a flower and you pick off the, the petals and you say, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me. No, no, no. God is love. He will never contradict himself. Don't fear. You see, some of us live life and, and we're so worried we won't find love today. Maybe marriage isn't very good. Maybe your children have abandoned you. Maybe children your parents have abandoned you. Maybe you don't know what work is like and you find people at work hating you or whatever it is. Or maybe you think that you'll never possibly get married. You're wondering, will I find love today? But my friends, if you have God, you have love. Don't fear. 
You might be also saying this, after this loss, whether it's a death or whether it's health or whether it's a job, you might be asking, will I ever be happy again? But my friends, if if God is simple and if God gives himself to you, you have eternal happiness. You have him. The best gift that God can give you is not just temporary happiness, but him because he is happiness. You see, the devil loves to paint God in the devil's own colors, right? He loves to paint God in the devil's own colors. But what we have to remember amidst the thoughts that maybe God won't love me today or maybe God won't accept me today or maybe he'll give up on me today. We have to remember, no, 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 my friend. God is God. He is one simple, undivided essence. Here's what it would mean to godly, to move and grow in godly fear. It means that if God is simple, he is infinite in beauty. Infinite in in beauty, meaning that if you have God, you have everything. Now think about this. What did you enjoy this week? What foods did you enjoy? The relationships you enjoyed or the video games you enjoyed or whatever it was that you enjoyed this week. What was it? Now think about this. What was so enjoyable about that? We have to learn to trace the beams of light back to its source. And the things that we enjoy in life, the things that they are good, we need to ask the question, where did that come from? The Creator. Now, how sad and silly would it be if we spent our entire life and we said, I'm just going to enjoy these trinkets rather than the one who made them. Because when you get God, you get everything. Because you get Him. God is infinite in beauty. He's also infinite in security because God, I love this quote by James Dolezal because God is not composed of parts. He cannot fall apart on us. Amen. Come on now. God's not made up of parts. God's not made up of tectonic plates that then will shift and cause an earthquake and destruction. God is one simple undivided essence. He is always sure no matter how shifty the times are. God is, Simple. God is also infinite in grace. See, here's one of the best parts about the simplicity of God. If God is who He is, remember, He doesn't just have grace, He is gracious. And if God is infinite, oh, dear sinner, when you come to Jesus Christ, you will receive infinite grace. God will never look at you and say, Are you kidding me? Again? Come on, dude. That's it. That's the last straw. I know we can do that with other people, but God does not do that to us. As Dane Ortland says, literally, God gets up out of bed, as it were, in the morning to show us grace. Because it's who he is. Do you have sin you're struggling with? Do you have sin that you think can't be forgiven? Do you have sin that you think will never finally be out of your life? Will you not look to this simple God who will give you grace upon grace? Amen? It's interesting because one point of scripture, and I forgot to quote where it is, but it says that the forgiveness of God is what moves us to fear him. He's unchangeably simple. God is unchangeably simple, but he is also simply 
unchangeable. Malachi 3.6. You can turn there if you want. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. It says this. Um, oh, excuse me. I'm in chapter 4. I was like, that's not the right one. All right, chapter 3, verse 6. says this. For I, the Lord, do not change. That's what immutability is. Not mutating. Not changing. And that makes sense because if God is simple and he's not made up of parts... He's always going to be who he is. You want to hear something really cool? I remember studying uh, Exodus 3.14 where God says, I am who I am. I remember studying that in the Hebrew for the first time. And it's almost as if it literally comes off as, I be who I be. He just is. He be who he be. He will not change. It's impossible. Because the moment that God changes, think about this. The moment that God changes either for the better or for the worse, then it means this. If God somehow can change for the better, then before he gets to the better, he must not be God. And the moment that God could possibly change for the worse, and that means at some point he has the potential to not be God. I can't be. Because the moment that God is not God, then what? He has to be able to not Change. Now, here's what we don't mean, if I can go this way again. We don't mean that God is stale. You know, the ponds in the, in the summer heat, and it's so humid, and just, you know, it's one of those ponds that, remember, we used to do when we used to go fishing in the summer, and we'd just be sweating so much of the Kool-Aid that we drank all day, and, and you sit there, and there's just bugs all over the surface, and there's just no wind, and you're like, this is nasty. And you have that joke with your friends. You're like, how much, how much would I have to pay you to drink that pond water? And you're like, no, that'd be the worst. Why? Because it's stale. It doesn't move. That's not God. God is not a stale, boring God. He does not change, but He is pure act. He never changes in and of Himself, but He's certainly not stale and he is certainly not boring. But rather, the Son has always been, or excuse me, he's always been begotten by the Father, and the Holy Spirit has always been proceeding from the Father and the Son. God is infinite, dynamic, eternal activity, as it were. He never changes in his being, but he's not stale. Here's what it means God is unchanging, and he is unchangeable. He will never not be who he is. Do you remember when I said at the very beginning of the worship service, we are a part of something way bigger than ourselves. The same God 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, whenever, when Adam was in the garden, boom, in existence. You know, moving around, little things, you know, looking out my eyeballs, what are these? God. The God we worship today in this very moment. The same God. That's Him. He never changes. He will always be who He will be. You see, if God can never not be God, then we can have great hope in Him. Because don't we get hurt so much? Now, sometimes it's good. You look at someone and you say, man, you changed. And that's actually going to be very good. (laughs) We want to change, but for the better. Because doesn't it also hurt whenever we've known someone for a long time and they change for the worse? But God never changes. So that way you can never look at God no matter what happens in your life and you can say, you've changed. No, no, no. He never changes.
You might say, well, what about in Scripture where it says that God repents? Where he changes his mind? Well, as John Calvin used to put it, that is as if God is giving baby talk to us. This goo-goo and gagan to us. Let me give you an example. Imagine coming up to Knox after church. It would be really funny if you actually did it. And you're like, okay, Knox, I'm going to teach you about the law of thermodynamics. Here's how I'm going to, you know. And you're like, I don't know. Y'all go for it. I ain't got a clue. Um, you know, but you try to explain something so completely complex. Or what if my dad, who's a veterinarian, was like, all right, Knox, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to teach you how to take a tumor out of a dog. You'd say, boy, ain't never going to understand it. Uh, and he won't. But here's what you can do. You can tell him true things about that in a way that he can understand, but it's not the full picture of it. You might even say this. It's like this. It's not identical to it, but there's an analogy there. When God says in Scripture, when it says that God repents, we don't say, okay, what is it like for us to repent, and I'm going to portray that back on God. That's not the way to do it. God does not change, but rather we change. We change our actions. God is always consistent with who he is. Track on me. I know. Whoo! This will get you, right? Look. God, he is always the same. He will never not be himself. And just to give you another quote that echoes what I'm trying to say, is that he doesn't change in his relation to his creatures, but rather his creatures change in relation to him, and he will always act consistently to his nature. Right? Do you embrace Jesus Christ? At one point, you were God's enemy and you became his friend. But it was because you changed, not because he changed. God now in Christ gives you what Christ deserves and that is consistent with the character of God. It's because of Christ and that being applied to us. Not God saying, their sin's not that bad, I'm just not going to worry about it. See that? How is this good news? You're thinking, well, this again, how's it bad news that God doesn't change? If God does not change, dear unbeliever, do you think that somehow you can escape his wrath? Do you think that somehow hell will just diminish and will just go away? Do you think that that God's law and his demands will somehow lighten up? Do you think that God will at some point say, I'll give you a pass here? That would be contrary to his being. But see, God's law never changes. One sin is always forever under his wrath. It must be dealt with because if it's not dealt with, it contradicts who God is. That's a problem. You see, God's ethics never change. We have changing times. We have changing views on sexuality and justice and human life. But here's the thing. God's ethics never change. And that's a problem for us. God's demands never change. It never means you can give him just good efforts or good intentions. His existence never changes. It means that if God will not change, then you must. That's what it's saying. But the good news is this. That the God who never changes, he took on flesh. And he lived a perfect life. And he died the death of 
that you and I deserve. And right before he breathed his last breath, in John 19.30, he said, It is finished. And God will never change his mind about that. Amen? Do you find yourself full of sin? Do you find yourself struggling to embrace God's ethics or or seeing how much you fall. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction or maybe you're struggling with a sin that just seems to never go away. My friend, run to Jesus Christ. God will never look at you in Jesus Christ and say, you need to add something to that. Or that's not quite enough for you. Or, ooh, I, I was managing you earlier with your kind of not so bad sins, but this one, you know, I don't know if I can do that. No, never Jesus Christ is always enough for you. The cross is always finished because if the cross is never not finished, Jesus must go back in the grave. Come on now. This is good news. Jesus Christ is enough for us. God will never change his mind, but rather God changes us. We never have to add anything to Jesus. Not before, not after we come to Jesus. Jesus is always enough. And do you know how you're growing in godliness? You grow in resting in the fact that Jesus is enough for me. And you know what? Actually, when you do that, you change. Not when you say, i got to really stay on point. I have to really make sure that like, I obey God's law or else he will condemn me. No, my friend, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. You have him. You see, this is such good news. Those of us who continue, all of us do, struggle with sin. We can come to Jesus and in the words of David in Psalm 51 verse 10, we can say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When we're struggling to believe things about God and who he is, we can come up to him like like the man whose son was ill and we can say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, we can come to Jesus when we're struggling with anxious thoughts about whether God's forgiveness is still true or whether his promises to provide for us that they're true. And we come to him and we look at the cross and we realize that his word, no matter when it was written, if it is his word, it is always sure it will never fall. Amen. No matter how much times change, no matter how out of whack your emotions may be, no matter what happens on the news or on your phone or whatever you see, God and His salvation and His grace never changes. That's how we can be steadfast. Because amidst changing times, we need a changeless God. It means we can trust His promises. He is always, always ruling over His church. It means this, please, my friend, do not let what if land. We always run to what if land. We always run into those thoughts where we say, well, what if this happens? Or what if this could happen? And, and we live in what if land. But as I tell my students, nothing good ever happens in what if land. God is not a what if. He is reality. Trust him. Don't run to what if land. Don't water down his commandments. You see, when you water down his commandments or his ethics, you actually lose the gospel. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's why we actually, in the history of the church, we've actually proclaimed grace. And when we proclaim grace, we uphold God's law, not for salvation, but because it helps us live according to him. 
You see, we're losing so many different ethics and things today, but that is such a tragedy because when we downplay sin, we downplay His grace. Now, here's what this does not mean in light of the Roe v. Wade decision. Do not be harsh with people. Speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 says, Paul says, speaking the truth in love. You never withhold truth, but you never withhold love. There is actually no such thing as truth unless it is coupled with God's love or love unless it's coupled with God's truth. As one of my mentors used to say, truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. My friends, maybe some of you in here have had an abortion or you know someone's had an abortion. Come to Jesus Christ. You have sinned, but He is a Savior of sinners. He will wash you. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. He won't dangle it over your head. He won't make that part of your identity. He won't keep you just saying, now don't you dare forget this. No, my friends, Jesus Christ said it is finished. Amen? Yes, let's uphold His truth. Let's do so in a gracious way. Because God does not change in His truth and in His love. That's why we are merciful and patient and kind and compassionate even when people struggle. And we tell them, run to Jesus Christ. He is enough for you. And then you can live forward with peace that God's covered you. Jesus has said in John 6, 37, whoever, no matter what sin, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Taj Mahal is one of the most beautiful and costly tombs ever built. But there's something fascinating actually about its beginnings. In 1629 when the favorite wife of Indian ruler Shah Jahan, if that's how you pronounce it, correct me if I'm wrong afterward, but when his favorite wife died, he ordered that a magnificent tomb be built as a memorial for her. So actually, the Shah placed his wife's casket in the middle of a parcel of land, and he began to build around it, and he began to build that temple, and that's what would be the Taj Mahal. But several years into this project, he actually stumbled across a strange box. And he had become so engrossed and enamored by the project that when he stumbled across this box, he ordered that it be thrown out. You know what that box was? It was her casket. You see, sometimes in life, we forget what's most important. And we move on to the things that seem practical. The things that seem to actually do something. But my friends, what is most important and is most practical is starting with knowing your God. Because that is what eternal life is. Jesus prays in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would show your mercy to us, that you would meet us in all of our sin, in all of our guilt, in all of our shame, in all of our dirtiness, no matter what we have done, or no matter what we will do. But, oh, Lord Jesus, that we would see that you are always enough. God, you are simple and you are unchanging. We know you will always be consistent.
to who you are. And may that be the anchor for us in changing times. And may that be how we love and speak to each other throughout this week. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.